So that experience for me was, uh, it was so interesting. It was the most impactful therapeutic experience I've ever had. It felt like I was able to check in in all these areas in my life really quickly where without any extra layers on top of it. Like it took away my own judgment and shame and guilt around things. And it let me literally just go through all the areas of my life and go, what do I think about this? What do I think about this? As the so-called third wave of psychedelic renaissance unfolds, the notion of self-improvement has taken a new and deeper meaning. In fact, and after a long slumber, the field of mental health is waking up to the therapeutic potentialities of these powerful tools in relieving symptoms of depression, PTSD, addiction, and fear surrounding terminal illness. Targeted towards beginners, Michael Pollan's book How to Change Your Mind, published in the summer of 2018, propelled the conversation around psychedelics to the forefront. Whether it's MDMA, psilocybin, ayahuasca, or more, the potential for consciousness expansion and psycho-spiritual growth is immense. Welcome to the Soul Space Podcast, where your host, Adrian Ethel. In 2017, the FDA granted breakthrough therapy designation to MDMA for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and is currently in phase three clinical trials. Popularly known as a recreational drug and the main ingredient in ecstasy, MDMA is paving the way for the possible near-term legalization of psychedelic therapy. On this episode, we talked to Ann Wagner, a clinical psychologist and one of the lead investigators involved in the clinical trials of MDMA plus cognitive-based psychotherapy for PTSD. Anne tells us how she ended up working in the cutting edge of psychedelic science and what these studies offer for the future of mental health. In her clinical practice, Anne applies a cognitive behavioral and mindfulness-based approach to therapy. And she also offers preparation and integration of psychedelic and non-ordinary state experiences. We got to connect with Anne at her new clinic, Remedy, in Toronto. We hope you enjoy this episode. It is our pleasure to bring you Anne Wagner. Welcome, Anne, to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, we're sitting in your space, Remedy, in Toronto. So mm-hmm. actually, that's one of the things we do want to ask you about is, is le- to learn more about the work that you're doing here. Um, but before we, I think, we dive into your current work, we tend to like to go backwards and just learn about your journey and how you got interested in the intersections between psychology, psychedelic science, and specifically the MDMA studies. And, and how did that all come together for you? Sure. So it was not a um, planned path, that's for sure, adding these things together. So I knew pretty early on that I wanted to pursue psychology. So within you know, the first two years of my undergrad degree, I decided that psychology was something that I found really interesting. And the thing that I liked the most about it was just the breadth and depth that you could have within one field. So you could be um, learning how to run studies, you could be seeing clients, you could be investigating all kinds of different things that have to do with the human psyche and our experiences in the world. So uh, that to me, the ability to be able to have a life where I got to ask lots of questions and be constantly learning and changing seemed really appealing. So I started that in my undergrad and then decided that, you know, clinical psychology was probably the right route for me. Uh, and I 
started grad school at Ryerson in uh, Ryerson University in Toronto. And I started that in 2007. So I started my master's and then my internship Mm. at the Center for Addiction Mental Health. And then I went back to Ryerson and did a five-year postdoc. And it was during that postdoc that I really uh, developed a really strong love and interest in working with trauma. And that would have been something that I had always been interested in. And I'd done work in my PhD, uh, working with my mentor, Candace Monson, uh, around treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. And then in my postdoc, that really got honed into how do we work with and improve the treatments that we have or potentially make new treatments for PTSD. So And the the reason why I found that so compelling was that the treatments we have, they work for some people some of the time, and that's amazing when they work. You see such incredible change for folks, especially with PTSD, feeling like something that feels permanent or like people are totally changed from how they were before. And um, the idea that someone can really have their world open up and be able to have a new future after that to me was absolutely compelling. And, um, you know, I, I tell the story sometimes that my, I think my interest really started in that given my grandfather, uh, was a world war II vet and he worked with veterans affairs Canada as an under minister of veterans affairs. And, um, he really, really believed in supporting the veterans in terms of their experiences and, at the time, you know, we didn't have a word for PTSD mm-hmm. after World War II, but he knew that there were lots of people who were struggling uh, after their experiences. Mm-hmm. So I kind of grew up understanding that this was, you know, after really challenging and traumatic experiences, oftentimes that people have no choice whatsoever in the circumstances in which they're placed, um, that we owe our brothers and sisters, you know, the ability to help work through, move forward and heal in different ways. So, um, that all kind of started to resonate and coalesce when I was in my postdoc and, uh, I was working with Candace on uh, some studies around this treatment that she developed, uh, called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for PTSD. So it's a couple's treatment. And that to me was so, interesting and fit with my values in terms of being able to work interpersonally with folks and seeing the impact, not just on the person, but on their relationships, on their families, on their communities in terms of how trauma impacts us. So we were doing work with, um, CBCT and testing that in various ways. When Candace was approached by, uh, the team at maps around, which is the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Um, about potentially collaborating. And the MAPS team had been looking at the use of MDMA for the treatment of PTSD uh, for many years at that point, over a dozen years. And uh, with, you know, the steps before that, having taken, you know, another 15 before that. So there was some conversations and I was really lucky to just kind of parachute into this conversation right at the beginning with Candace and we decided to be open-minded and give it a go. And so um, the really exciting piece for me was that I have no idea about psychedelic use in psychotherapy at that point, like zilch. What year was this? Uh, This would have been in 2013. Mm -hmm. So I went from literally no knowledge to now running clinical trials with, uh, with MDMA. And it's been the most, uh, impactful transition for me, um, in terms of my own trajectory and growth and as both a person, but also as a, a researcher and a clinician. So a lot has changed in six years. Uh, that's for sure. And, uh, yeah, at that point, that's when we started to work on this pilot study of cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy plus MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. And that started off by Candace and I getting to have our own uh, MDMA therapy experiences through a study for therapists that gave them the experience of understanding what that feels like. And that for me was the thing that convinced me that this was going to be worth my time and 
energy and putting a lot of love behind this work. So I, yeah, that was the starting point in, uh, that, that session would have been in spring of 2014 and it's been kind of history since then in terms of getting this going. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, when you, cause something I'm thinking about when you're talking about PTSD, um, a lot of people, uh, connected only with veterans, granted veterans have, you know, they go through a lot and they see all kinds of horrible scenarios. Um, but it's, there are also different types of PTSD, complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people that, you know, due to childhood trauma have PTSD. So maybe we can, if you can just talk about PTSD a little bit. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So PTSD, arises from a whole number of different traumatic experiences in people's lives. And they can be, it can be from repeated experiences like uh, childhood abuse experiences. It can be from repeated exposure to averse details. For example, first responders um, are prime for that experience. It can be from single incidents, like it could be from an assault or an accident or witnessing something really traumatic happen to somebody else. Um, and it can be, as you said, for veterans, from experiences of war, it can be from displacement, it can be from all kinds of different aspects of conflict. So yeah, the idea behind PTSD is it can come from all these different things, um, but it often looks the same in terms of its presentation, in terms of what it looks like and people feeling like they need to avoid things that remind them of the traumatic experience, whatever that experience is. There's the re-experiencing of thoughts and memories associated with the event or events. There's the hyperarousal that goes alongside of it. So that feeling in your body of being constantly on alert or constantly activated in some way. And then there's numbing that goes alongside of it as well. So you may have uh, either really strong emotions um, and really challenging cognitions, or you may end up having a numbed out experience where you're not feeling much at all. And so all of those, that constellation of symptoms, if you will, or things that happen, they all form to make up PTSD. And uh, the differentiation, you know, between complex PTSD and PTSD um, is, you know, it's one where I think people uh, find it really helpful to talk about complex PTSD to think about the extent of the experience that they've had. Um, And what I find in the research is actually that the treatments that we have for PTSD as just PTSD work for complex PTSD as well. So I think that, um, for me, I often often get questions around complex PTSD and what I think about that. And, you know, I've, I've done some publishing actually around, um, challenging the construct of that, that there is no real difference. Yeah. Right. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And, and simply because if we really whittle it down, what matters most is experience is experience, but it's also, if we're going to differentiate, it's usually because we want to figure out how to best help oh, and best treat. Yeah. And so therefore, if how we treat would be the same, why would we differentiate between the two? Anyways, I'm a fan of parsimony. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sense, so yeah. anyways, very open to however, however you want to interpret right. your experience a hundred percent. That's, that's yeah. in your hands. Um, but how it guides, how we form treatment, yeah. I think is a different way. I think the main thing is that because a lot of, people who are suffering from PTSD and they're not veterans, they don't legitimize their, you yes. know, they feel like, you know, or, or they perceive like, Oh, are, do you really have PTSD? Like you, you, you we're not in a war zone, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do think that helps in terms of, or I can, I notice it more actually in terms of um, folks having uh, a broader understanding of their experience. If they feel like they identify with one term or right. another and, yeah, I think whatever means to be able to own and, and accept that experience is useful. Right. Yeah. I, I put a flag down when you mentioned um, have, having that, that experience with, with Candace the first time you were sort of, sort of convinced that yeah. you wanted to do this research. Are you comfortable sharing what that, that experience was like? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So the experience of having an MDMA therapy session uh, so the way it was designed in that first 
the thing I participated in, we had one active session and then one placebo session, of course. So you don't know which one you're going to get first. And, uh, but you pretty quickly will know which one. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I figured it out. <laughs> um, although it was pretty funny about an hour in, I was I was not perceiving any effect at that point. And I thought to myself, I was like, you know, this is probably placebo. All right. Like I'll have to wait. Oh, like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah with, like within 10 minutes, you know, it's funny. Everyone else had seen my blood pressure spike, but mm. I had not seen the, um, mm. the recordings that I shades on <laughs> and they were all, you know, waiting. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, yeah. Um, so that experience for me was, uh, it was so interesting. It was the most impactful therapeutic experience I've ever had. It felt like I was able to check in, in all these areas in my life really quickly where without any extra layers on top of it, like it took away my own judgment and shame and guilt around things. And it let me literally just go through all the areas of my life and go, what do I think about this? What do I think about this? How about that? And it felt like, you know, I wasn't particularly intending to check in these areas, but it it allowed me to do that. And it felt like I reached um, my conclusion easily and readily. And even if that conclusion was ambivalence about something, yeah. I was like, great, I'm ambivalent about that. That's the answer. So it it let me not second guess a lot of things that were happening in my internal world. Um, and I found that that the effects of it lasted for a really long time. I mean, it it literally that session, I felt like I was, you know, integrating and processing for, you know, weeks, if not months later. But the overall impact for me has been uh, well, it really, it changed my life in a lot of ways, not just because of the therapy, but also what it then led to. And I think that that sense of that deep investigation and exploration can really help to shape your trajectory. So, um, yeah, so that was, and I was actually great, really grateful to have a placebo session next. Cause then I just got to integrate the whole experience a few days later and talk <laughs> about it going like, wow. All right. So all this stuff happened in that session. We'll get to chat about it now. I guess at that point, then, um, what were the next steps after having the experience? And then you've been asked to go, go ahead with the research. Was that the deciding point to, to, to move along and then move, move, move ahead? Yeah, it, yeah, it certainly was for me. I think we went in pretty open-minded, like, you know, curious to explore, but using that as a, uh, a test to see, did we think that this might have value or could we see this working? Um, and so after that, we ended up, we, initially we were thinking a lot about, okay, so we'll go into the experience and we should have these questions in mind and we should think about it. And then as soon as I got into the MDMA experience, I was like, forget it. I'm just having my own experience. I'm not thinking about methodology for a study right now. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so we, we basically, we both chose to use that week just to have our own experiences and think through that. Mm -hmm. And then with time, you know, I, I quickly made the decision that I th wanted to use this as a tool for therapy, but we then gave ourselves a bit of space to then actually start thinking up what that would look like in terms of a treatment and a protocol and things. Mm -hmm. So, so you guys combine uh, the MDMA therapy with, uh, you said CBCT. That's right. Yeah. Can you talk to us about that, please? Sure. So, um, we use, so CBCT, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for PTSD, is a 15 session treatment that's designed for two people to go through the treatment together. And, uh, those two people could be in any way re in relation with each other. It's generally speaking, it's romantic couples who choose to go through treatment together, but it doesn't mean it has to be. Um, and, so within that treatment, folks are taken through kind of three main phases of therapy. The first phase is really understanding PTSD, um, doing some psychoeducation about what PTSD is, what it might look like in your relationship, how it's impacting you, as well as talking about uh, how anger and aggression can impact the relationship and beginning to understand what those look like in the relationship and building some skills to counteract that and cope with. And then moving to phase two, uh, we go more specifically into 
other skill building. So communication skills like paraphrasing and some problem solving skills and beginning to approach things the couple has been avoiding. And so we design these approach tasks with the couple to help them be able to live a life of approach where they're, you know, engaging together and doing things they may not have been doing otherwise. And then the third phase specifically moves into uh, making meaning of the traumatic event. And so thinking about areas where each of them and together, they may be stuck around the trauma um, and thinking through some core themes that are related to trauma. So acceptance and blame are a big one, uh, control, power, trust, esteem, intimacy, um, post-traumatic growth. So using those. And then, uh, yeah, so that's the framework of CBCT. And then what we did when we added MDMA to it was we put it in strategic places in the protocol where we thought, uh, you know, if we were going to want to boost the effect of what we're doing, Mm -hmm. we'd maybe want it in these two places. So we put it, one was in right after they'd learned the communication skills. Mm -hmm. And so being able to have those skills as a bit of a template to be able to work with the experience together, both during and after. And then again, we placed one uh, right in the heart of the trauma processing. So they'd started some, and then we put the MDMA session to allow them to see what else could unravel in that moment and then work with them to integrate it after. I think you had mentioned that it's not only um, romantic couples, right? Have you guys had different types of dynamics? So in the pilot with the MDMA, it was only romantic couples. Uh, We were open to, the recruitment was open for any type of dyad, but it was only couples who came in. Um, But then in case studies that we've worked with outside of that study, we've seen um, parent-child, we've seen... Mm -hmm. um, good friends go through it together and try to think if we had siblings. Yeah. So there's been a few different constellations. And and do you think the impact of um, the therapy would be different if it was just singular, like just like the person that's suffering from PTSD without the conjoint? So, I mean, there are other therapies. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm just thinking about the difference between both. Um, Mm -hmm. Um. but I, I do see the benefit of the relational aspect. Yeah, yeah it's it's definitely a different frame in right. which to conduct the therapy. And, um, you know, the individual treatment, um, for example, cognitive processing therapy, which is going to be the next pilot study that we're running with MDMA, um, it is an individually delivered. Treatment. Oh, so you're going to do, okay. Yeah. See. And the work that's been done up until now, so uh, that the MAPS team has been running, uh, has been an individually delivered treatment and it's with a um, inner directive supportive psychotherapy for PTSD. So not uh, specifically one modality, but mm. kind of allowing what comes up. Uh, so partly one of our goals with doing you know, the CBCT and now the CPT plus MDMA was to use treatments that have already been tested for treatment for PTSD and to see when we add MDMA, do you have even broader or stronger effect. Uh, so giving us a different starting point in terms of the evidence in which to uh, see if it's effective. I wanted to ask these, um, the subjects, part of that first pilot that you were involved in, did they, were they diagnosed as treatment resistant PTSD? Have they tried mm-hmm. other forms of treatment prior to the study? Yeah. So in this in the pilot we ran, they didn't specifically have to be treatment resistant, but they all were. Um, so it was, it just so, Ended you know, up, yeah. it, people are not necessarily jumping the gun to do this without having tried mm. many different things. So yeah, everyone had had lots of different treatments in the past. I'm so curious. Um, yeah, there's so many, the, so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm thinking the juicy place to, to dive into is their first experience, you know, if you can share with us perhaps maybe what their experiences were leading up to it and, and the, what the day looked like when, yeah. when they had it for the first time. Sure. So, um, so folks had had some preparation ahead of time. So obviously they'd gone through a consent process and lots of conversation about what this whole treatment was going to look like. And then they'd had some intensive days or a day and a half, basically, of CBCT. So we squished 
the equivalent of five sessions into a day and a half of CBCT. Um, and so, and some of that day was in the morning of their MDMA session. So they were, uh, mostly quite nervous before their MDMA sessions, especially a lot of them were either psychedelic or intactogen naive, or the experiences they had had were like 20, 30, 40 years ago and, you know, university at some point. Um, so never in this context and never with the presumption that they're going to be talking about trauma. So, uh, yeah, so there was definitely anxiety ahead of time, which we would work with. And a lot of the partners were quite anxious too, because, you know, they were like, okay. <laughs> they're coming along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. And everyone, you know, went through with it and did it. And, uh, so the way the room is designed when we were doing the sessions, uh, there would be two recliner chairs. And so the couple would sit in those recliner chairs and be able to either have the option of sitting up or you know, lying back, not completely flat, but, you know, quite reclined. And then the two therapists would be in the room with them and facing them. And then if people were feeling really activated and they want some support from the therapist, we had like small camper chairs that we would sit beside them on the recliner chairs. So, um, they could have it's a little bit of space or closeness and, uh, they were close enough to each other that if they reached out, they could touch hands or hold hands, um, or can choose not to, if they wanted to as well. And so the way the day was, there really was no structure to the day other than, um, you know, we would encourage them to spend time as we deemed it inside, which means, uh, with headphones on eye shades on and just reflecting internally in that experience. And then other times where they'd be talking with us or talking with their partner and sharing the experiences that were coming up or reflections. Um, so, you know, we'd go through different periods of time inside time outside, and we learned how to better orchestrate interaction between the couple mm. in terms of, you know, at some point someone's ready to talk and the other one's deeply in process with something else. So we would, um, we learned how to kind of check in with one or the other, or maybe jot down a note and say, we'd hold that, that thought for them and they could go back inside and we'd raise it again when everyone was, you know, out in the room. Yeah. So that's basically what it looked like. What about the role of music? Yeah. So music plays a very important role yeah. in kind of assisting the process. So, you know, allowing for an arc in the experience and having, um, supportive music kind of at the beginning and then active music as you're kind of getting peak effect and then, uh, you know, music that helps with resolution closer to the end. Um, but you also need to, you know, we had, to, we were flexible with the music within it. So, um, Annie Mithofer, who is one of the, um, investigators and she's a great DJ. So <laughs> she was our DJ for all the sessions, which I'm going to have to learn how to do when I'm running the sessions here. And, uh, yeah, so both members of the dyad would have earphones on and we'd also have it playing in the room. So, uh, everyone could hear the music. Oh, okay. And so we had splitters to do that. And, and we'd, at times we'd turn the music off when they're talking. And mm. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, mm. do, do you turn off when they're talking, you guys turn off the music and yeah. Or turn it down. Oh, okay. So, you, you yeah. know, just mostly so it's everyone can hear each other. Yeah. Yeah. How many couples were, were there in total in that study? Yeah, so it was a small number. So we ran six couples through it. And it's really, originally we were thinking of going up to 10, but uh, for a number of different reasons, including time and money. and uh, But also the main reason was because our effects were looking very good. We decided to stop at six um, to be able to kind of had enough evidence to show we can do it. It's feasible. It's safe. People tolerate it and people improve. And that's enough of a signal to say we need a larger study. So in designing a larger study that would have a control condition. I imagine all the internal experiences vary, you know, greatly between mm -hmm. um, participants. But were there any commonalities you guys noticed um, in, in, in those uh, in the six that you, you were sitting with? Uh, yes. I mean, one thing that I think was very interesting as someone who, you know, does a lot of trauma therapy with folks outside of uh, MDMA work is just how consistently people would go into their trauma memories and recount the experiences unprompted mm -hmm. with MDMA. And so that was fascinating. And I'd heard that that had been the case 
uh, with the other studies, but that it like clockwork would happen every time. And, um, you know, it was no priming, no mm-hmm. asking people to go into the memory. We don't even actually require that at all of people in CBCT to actively go over the memory, but it happened for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's like they went through the files of, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, that analogy is used a lot, actually, it's like putting files <laughs> yeah. in a row. And, yeah. you know, I, I had that experience myself of like checking in. It's like checking all the files. And, and other people with PTSD, when they're going through this, they're, you know, checking through the files, the memories. Yeah. And, and so then the role of the therapist um, is really the major role is pre and post the experience. Like during the experience, of course, you're holding the space for the, for the clients, but it's, it's, it feels, it seems like from what you're saying that it's like, um, self-guided in a way. Yeah. The, in the MDMA session itself, we're definitely there to hold space and to help when people are stuck. And so I think that piece is also very important. (laughs) Um, and you know, sometimes when we think about like being non-directive, in fact, there's moments where we're actively working with folks in session yes, to, yes. to help the experience or if people are feeling particularly stuck in a thought or a memory, we're there to help them work through that and, you know, gently, you know, be Socratically questioning or asking different things or exploring. But the a massive chunk of the work is before and after. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what happened after the first session? What's the, the next stage in the, in the protocol of the study? Yeah. So... They'd gone through equivalent of five sessions of CBCT before, and then they had the MDMA session. And then the next morning we would uh, talk about experience integrated a bit and set them up with out of session work for the following week. And then they would do the equivalent of four sessions of CBCT. In this case, we did it over video um, simply pragmatically because we all didn't live in the same place. Mm -hmm. And then they came back together about three weeks later, had another day where they did two sessions of CBCT. And then they had a second MDMA session, integrated that, and then finished out the protocol, which was four more sessions of CBCT. So they received MDMA twice Mm -hmm. in this whole thing. Yeah. It took about two months to get through everything. So what were the results? Sort of dying to hear the the summary of the findings for yeah. the pilot. <laughs> so they're not published yet, but I can um, let you know. So we actually published a case study last week. Um, so that has the first results are out in Congrats. the world there. Thank you. Very Thanks. exciting. It's in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs. <laughs> so it's good. Um, so, yeah, overall, the results were very strong. We had really um, good results for PTSD, both from the report of the person with PTSD, so their self-report, as well as the clinician-rated report. And so that's an independent rater, so not the people who treat them. It's from someone who do, you know, doesn't know where they are in treatment and whatnot. And they also, we saw um, significant improvements in relationship satisfaction as well. And that was really interesting because not all the couples were distressed coming in. And I think that's important because mm-hmm. a lot of the time, you know, we think about actually how PTSD lives in relationships. People have to make sense of it. And therefore, oftentimes they accommodate the other person as we all do in our lives. We accommodate the people we love. So it's, you know, you're trying to make it okay. And especially when something's not okay in a system, it creates a very difficult system, but that works for some people. And so that can be a challenge. Sometimes when things change, the system disrupts because everything's been, you know, trying to hold tight to keep it together. So the fact that we saw improvement for folks who even already were starting okay, which meant there might've been some accommodation was really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So more to come, but that's the like. So it, because, because when, because, so if it's not really couples therapy, it's, it was, it's conjoined therapy, but um, that the, you know, the couples therapy is like that bonus part that came Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, the way we we structure it, I mean, it really, it is a couples therapy. It it could be any version of couple that you think of. Um, But the idea is the relationship is actually the client in uh, CBCT. So it's not the person with PTSD. It's not the partner. It's the couple uh, or the relationship. And having that be the focus is really useful so that one person doesn't feel like the other person's their other therapist or that they're responsible for the other person. They're doing it together. Are you, are you able to share any of the self reports by these subjects? Um, 
things that they shared with you, whether it's during the study or afterwards that you might want to uh, share with listeners? Sure. So, um, I mean, people spontaneously had really incredible, you know, things that they wanted to say or share and, um, you know, feeling like they'd gotten their lives back or that they felt renewed hope for the future. And, um, you know, in the session itself, you know, I had people say that, you know, this is really, they felt like they'd gotten their marriage back or that they now have a sense of feeling connected. Um, I got an email a few months ago, which marked like a year since one of the couples had started the study. And it was just a, a reach out of gratitude and mm-hmm. thanks and reporting that they now felt like they had a completely different life and they were very grateful and that they just thought it was all really cool. So that was a really neat thing to, to receive. It's mm-hmm. amazing. How, how about like, um, how rigorous was it for you? Like to go through the daily experience of going through the study and mm. yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Like your personal experience. Of yeah, it. yeah. It's, it's a labor of love doing yeah. a clinical trial. That's for sure. Like it's, I can imagine <laughs> it's, you really have to want to do it. And, uh, I remember, you know, Candace once told me this is not for the faint of heart. I'm like, no, it was very, yeah. very true. It's a lot of details and a lot of planning. Um, it is a ton of work for a little bit of data, mm. but it's in my mind, so worth it. And, you know, the days when you sit in the sessions with folks, um, and you see them change right there in front of you and you're like, wow, this idea we had, I think it's working like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's unreal. Um, that feels, that feels pretty cool. And, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I found working on this particular study to be incredibly inspiring. And so, uh, that certainly helps drive all the rest of the work and has now shaped what I'm doing going forward. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, um, most of the subjects, if not all, had improvements in their symptoms of PTSD. Mm-hmm. How how did they do afterwards, post-study? Uh, what was the time frame for the follow-up and, and checking in on them? Yeah, so the vast majority, well, I mean, there's only six couples. <laughs> the majority, not everyone, okay. um, saw a resolution in their PTSD, but most did. And those gains were maintained. Um, through six month follow up, so that's the the most the furthest data we have. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, w- one of the things that we we often hear a lot in in psychedelic research and 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 um, just discourse is the the integration after yeah. these experiences. Can you share any wisdom that you might have gained from the study mm-hmm. about how to better integrate or or to tie back to their daily lives? For sure, I think a big piece is that integration isn't just like your next session with your therapist integration happens over time as you begin to put the lessons you've learned into action and it might shape your approach to something or how you feel in general or you might have an echo of it you know a year later and go like oh yeah so it's it's being open to that being the case i think is the key thing with integration as you go forward and we certainly saw that you know, in some cases, we saw people continue to make gains over the six months afterwards. And that for us was really interesting because that means that they're still learning and growing. And that is ideal because you're basically setting people up for a new baseline, a new place to start from. And um, that happens too often when people find success with treatment without MDMA. Um, but it was particularly highlighted for me when the use of a psychedelic or intactogen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about a psychotherapist listening to this, wondering when will legalization happen? When can I start training? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> um, so what it's looking like right now. So all of the, the movement to have MDMA legalized as a treatment for PTSD. It's, it's started in the U S cause that's where all the, um, studies have happened so far. It's looking, we're hopeful that it will be within the next few years that it will be legal uh, because right now there's a phase three study, which is a drug development study happening um, in multiple different sites across North America uh, sponsored by MAPS. And they, at that point, they will, after phase three, it's possible that MDMA can get the indication to be a treatment for PTSD. 
So that's the doorway to it being legal. Mm. Um, and so the hope would be it would quickly follow suit in Canada um, using the evidence for the U.S. So, I mean, my fingers are crossed that it's going to be within the next few years. Um, there's also in the States, there's something called expanded access where when things are uh, demonstrating strong effect and people are at risk for death, mm. that there you can potentially be using um, a medication that's still being investigated mm. for specific cases to be used. So uh, the training that's happening right now for folks to become MDMA-assisted psychotherapists is for this idea of expanded access or those of us who are studying it, doing it through the research. Um, so that, I mean, could be as soon as later this year where expanded access could be available in some places. Uh, in Canada, we have different regulations around that, so it may not be as straightforward. Um, but potentially could still be a possibility. And then, of course, I mean, the psilocybin work is another area where, um, you know, we're seeing fast movement in terms of potentially there being indications for uh, treatment-resistant depression and other things. So that might be another area where we might be seeing um, the potential legal use of psychedelics and treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know everyone's got their fingers crossed, right? It's like it's, you know, it seems like this is the the opportunity, but also not to mess it up. And, and so yes. definitely, you know, important that this time around this renaissance that's happening is mm -hmm. to, to do it properly so that it is sustained. And Exactly. It's extremely important that we don't squander this opportunity. <laughs> We're at this, there's been so much work that has gone to this place. And so many people have been paving the way for mm. this to be the case. And um, I'm very conscious of just how measured we need to be and just how careful and thoughtful around all of this use. So, mm -hmm. Can you talk about the, the other study? So that with the CPT yeah. plus MDMA that is it currently uh, underway? Is it? It's in development right now. Development. So I'm just finishing the protocol for it. Uh, so our hope is that we'll be recruiting in the fall for that study, but that's pending a bunch of different approvals that need to go through. Um, so that study, the design is very similar to the couple study. Um, it's going to be, but it's an individual treatment and using CPT, so cognitive processing therapy, which is one of the most widely used and most widely researched and has some of the strongest evidence for the treatment of PTSD. And it's usually 12 sessions. And so right now we're just, you know, refining exactly where we're going to place the two MDMA sessions within the protocol. Um, but it will likely have a similar structure in terms of having kind of massed dosing of treatment before the first MDMA session spread out over three weeks, second MDMA, and then finish it out. And this time not over video because we'll do it here <laughs> in person mm -hmm. how um how's the recruitment for that so how do people uh if they're interested in joining the study or being a participant how does that happen how does yeah. that work so right now we're not we don't have open recruitment since the study isn't approved yet mm -hmm. um but if people are interested in it uh it will be for ptsd so it is specifically for ptsd and people don't have to already have a diagnosis of ptsd because it will end up you know, they will have to go through assessment through the study. Um, but they can always um, contact us at Remedy and uh, we have a contact us button on our homepage and um, can be added to a list to learn more. And so that would, uh, doesn't guarantee anything, mm -hmm. um, but it just would allow folks to get updates as to, for example, when the study is starting to recruit or updates along the way as we get going. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So maybe um, then talk to us about Remedy. <laughs> sure. Okay. So Remedy um, is where we're seating right now. So Remedy is a center for mental health innovation in Toronto. And uh, the idea behind Remedy was to have a home where research and practice really live together. And the idea that we want to be continually open to growth and exploration as clinicians, as researchers, as people who are working in mental health. And that includes our own growth as well as the growth of the field. Um, so the idea here at Remedy is everyone who's involved is invested in the idea of innovating mental health. And that can be in a whole host of different ways. So uh, for example, one of the ways we do that is going to be through MDMA research here, uh, but also we have folks who are innovating how we manage a practice, how, um, you know, 
where we run trauma informed yoga, how we do uh, care for folks that's integrating different types of treatments together. We have all kinds of different things. Someone's going to be writing, you know, a pop psychology book based on evidence. So it's innovating how we think about and access mental health and, and thinking about it in a broader way so that we don't feel uh, stuck or stymied in how we do that. So we offer uh, clinical services, but also we do research here and our, we collaborate with different like-minded groups to try to create a community who are all with the same vision. I imagine it's part of the vision um, to consider post-legalization and what that might look like. Can you yeah. share a little bit about your vision for once it's legal, what the clinic might look like and how it's offered to the public? Yeah, absolutely. So my vision for that will be, we'll have basically two tracks. We'll have our research stream, which will be running and testing interventions, uh, which you know is where, where my love is there. And But I'm also a clinician and I want to be able to offer this in terms of people being able to come in and receive MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD in the practice here. So it will be either people could participate through research or through uh, being able to come in and you know have that treatment. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be set up here to be able to offer that given that we're already going to be set up to run the research. And so we'll be ready and opening our doors to that is the minute it's legal. <laughs> so yeah, we've got a team here who... Uh, we actually, I just took a team down to Asheville, North Carolina for the most recent MDMA therapist training. And so we've got a team who are raring to go. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. If I'm just imagining if, if you had infinite funding and resources mm-hmm. from a, from a researcher's side, what would excite you as far as future re- studies that you might want to explore and, yeah. and go into? I, I've already designed my next big one. So <laughs> it would be a randomized control trial for the couples study. So it would be um, CBCT plus MDMA in one condition and then with a placebo control in the other, maybe a crossover design at the end. So, but that would be the, we really need to test it out with more people, a uh, more diverse sample. Yeah. I think that was a massive thing as, you know, in the pilot study, it was, heterosexual Caucasian folks in that sample. And that is not representative of who the globe, we, the globe <laughs> and who we are here in Toronto. And, um, you know, I, I think particularly I, I've done a lot of community work and queer communities here. And I think, you know, expanding, especially what that looks like in terms of our, you know, constellations of folks participating in the treatment and as well as the therapists that, that we have a, we're really excited about what that's going to look like. And when we test it on a bigger scale, like what's it going to look like for all of the, for everybody? Yeah. It's going to look very different. Hopefully it's going to be legal very soon. It's going to look different when it's, you know, out there and different people are accessing it. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah. It's exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. We're super stoked for your work. I mean, you're right in the trenches, so it's, it's a real <laughs> honor actually. Yeah. To be, to be in your space and to get a glimpse of the journey so far. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Any more questions? Feel yeah. pretty good there. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to add? Something that you have not been able to share in, you know, other lectures or other interviews? Um, that's a great question. I think, you know, that's, it's a really exciting time for this work. Um, I think it's the, the possibilities for growth and exploration are also huge when it comes to psychedelics and intactogens. And I don't want to lose sight of that. And I think oftentimes when we are focusing so much on the clinical work and the clinical indications that sometimes feels like maybe gets pushed to the side when, you know, we've, there's so many cultures around the world who've used psychedelics as forms of ritual, as forms of growth and learning and healing that, um, you know, this is not new. This is not new at all. Yes, and, yes. uh, I want to honor that. that In fact, it's ancient. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just so happens that we're conceptualizing its use right now with how we understand this particular version of how we present is and in our modern context which is fine yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so i think i want to make sure we know that that this you know while it feels quote-unquote cutting edge it is completely ancient and this we're not uh 
coming up with new ideas particularly, but, uh, but I'm really honored also to bring it forward into the here and now. So there's that piece. Um, yeah, I think that's a biggie that's on my mind. Yes. And hopefully that will, you know, um, revolutionize, uh, mental health, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the thing <laughs> that's, you know, coming up now. Yeah, I think right? so. Yeah. And I think we have so much possibility there. Yes. And, you know, I, I do think we're at a time where folks are far more reflective about their own internal world yes. and the possibilities for that. And that this might be one tool to really assist in that. Yeah. And I guess just one final thing too, I'm reminded of um, the way Michael Pollan shared uh, just the excitement beyond the pathological use Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, addressing pathological um, experiences and, and just for the betterment of well people, I think was the way that he was putting it. And I think, yeah, starting to redefine self growth um, and mental health beyond sort of the, the the sort of the highly stigmatized um, cultural perspectives that we have. For sure. Yeah. I have, hope that one day we'll be able to offer, um, you know, MDMA assisted psychotherapy for couples, right? Just not because there's PTSD, but because, you know, people want to explore and grow together and understand their relationships and their dynamics or for individuals and, you know, still thoughtfully Mm -hmm. and with precaution and all the good context of set setting and a good container. But um, the idea that that would be a tool would be lovely. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you. O traveler, O seeker, an inner roar jolts and cajoles you from the depth of shadows and slumber. Awaken now, awaken here, Reluctant you wail, in despair you lie, from the center to the periphery you traverse, June upon June. The taste of frivolity no longer appeals to you. Annihilated you tread, skillfully you tread, unskillfully you tread. The one light guiding you through the woods, alone, amongst others, with awe, with love. From the periphery to the center you traverse and taste honey for the first time. hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we talk to Issa Gucciacardi about shamanic journeying and depth hypnosis. You can find links and show notes at soulspacepodcast.com. Please support our work by leaving us a review on iTunes. And you can follow us on social at soulspacepod. That's soulspacepod. As always, thanks for tuning in. Until next time.